This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming to you from Great American Ballpark, it's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Better Off Red podcast. I'm super excited about this edition of the show because I think it's one of our best. We caught up with one of the most talented Reds players of the 1980s, Cal Daniels. If you're not familiar with Cal Daniels, try and remember Joey Votto in 2008, an up-and-coming left-handed hitter with remarkable plate discipline who was destined to be one of the best hitters in baseball. Cal's time in Cincinnati lasted a tumultuous four seasons. He was outspoken and often voiced his concerns to the press. But man, he could hit. And that's how he earned the real headlines. Cal talks to us about his time in Cincinnati, the bad times and the good. He tells us about that infamous coin flip with Marge Schott, what it was like playing for Pete Rose, how his knees forced his retirement, and so much more. If you're a 1980s Reds fan, or have an appreciation for the great Reds players from the past, this episode is right in your wheelhouse. Without further ado, here's Cal Daniels. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce a guy who played for the Cincinnati Reds in the 80s, a guy who was born to hit, as Pete Rose once said. His name is Cal Daniels. Cal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to have me, Jamie. Cal, let's uh, let's just catch everybody up right away out there in Reds country with what you're doing these days. Well, I'm living back in Georgia where I was born and raised. I have a, a baseball academy here where I do private lessons, and uh, I have travel ball teams. We travel around the country to try to get some of the uh, top elite players, uh, some uh, we're some scouts and college prospects, major league scouts, and take a look at them and try to get them to the next level. You can't you can't get rid of that baseball bug, can you? You know what? It's it, you know I was, I was born to be a baseball player, you <laughs> know, and I I got to the highest level, and I feel like it was my God given ability to go back to give back to the younger kids, teaching from the major league level down. You know, a lot of kids around here get little league coaches, high school coaches, college coaches. That's all they know. But I was, you know, I was just fortunate enough to make it to the big league, so I teach from the major league level down. And I also know what scouts are looking for. Mm-hmm. So I try to prepare them at a very young age in order to go about doing it the right way. Because my, my main thing is I tell them sometimes you don't get one chance to make a first impression. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's running out on the field. That's scouts watching you get a loose. So always have a good very first impression. Did you have anyone when you were growing up and get getting into the into the game to to kind of guide you and to coach you? Yeah, I had my, my godfather uh, when I was ten years old. He always told me, he said, "Son, you gonna play center field for the New York Yankees." <laughs> this is when I had I had never even stepped foot in the outfield before. 
I was only I was a shortstop on the pitcher. And at ten years old, he told me I'd be playing in the outfield. I looked at him and laughed. I thought I'd be playing shortstop for the New York Yankees, but not no outfield. <laughs> but he just he, he just taught me the right way to how to play the game. Mm-hmm. And and the only thing I do is try to pass on a little a bit of every coach that coached me along the way to these players. You know, because you can always learn a little bit of something from everyone. You know, I read somewhere, Cal, that you kind of uh, learned hitting from Ted Williams's book, The Science of Hitting. Is that true? That's very true. That's the best hitting book ever been re- written. I used to read it every offseason, even though I knew it word for word. But I used to read it every offseason, maybe sometimes two or three times. And then in certain sections, I'd go back and read it over and over. Right. So, I mean, Teddy Ballgame, best hitter to ever live. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you take his advice? Who introduced you to that book? Matter of fact, it was given to me in a res package. Yeah. yeah, believe it or not, when I was first coming up with the res, they gave us a pack, package, and that was in there. Science of hitting. A lot of guys never knew it was in there, but it, it was just something that I, I chose to read. And, and, and even though I live by it today, even with some of the things I teach my young kids. Did you ever get a chance to meet Ted? Nope, never got a chance. Oh. Never got a chance. That's one guy I wish I would have got a chance to meet. But being, you know, not ever playing in the American League, mm-hmm. that's one thing I couldn't do. Right. You know, like I said, when we used to play Boston in spring training, he was never around during that time. He was always some other some engagement. But I wish I would have had a chance to meet him. We have a player here in Cincinnati who I'm sure you're very familiar with named Joey Votto. And yeah, he, believe it or not, Joey Votto was the only player on that team that I keep up with. Me I, and him did a uh, we did a autograph session about three or four years ago at Mola High School, mm-hmm. and we became pretty good friends. And uh, I, I really follow his career. I think, uh, just from a personal standpoint, I think perhaps you probably hit it off with Joey is because in my, in my view, there is a lot of similarities there. Uh, Very similar. You were a guy who was considered a natural born hitter. You, uh, you had unmatched plate discipline, which Joey, like Joey today has, um, very high on base percentage. And you took some, uh, you took some gruff from folks who thought maybe in a clutch quote unquote clutch situation, you should uh, swing at a pitch, a li- even if it's a little bit outside of this zone, to perhaps drive in runs. But right. you both kind of stay true to the fact that if it's not a strike, you're not swinging at it. Right. You know, I was always taught the take what the pitchers give you. If the pitcher's not giving you nothing to hit, take your head off and wait till you're next at bat. You know, I don't. I, right now, I, I look at the baseball, the game of baseball. The two talents that you got to have right now is to be to throw hard and be to swing up. Mm-hmm. Those are only really two talents you got to really have to be in the major leagues right now. And you, you, you look at some of the things like uh, the little second baseman for Houston. We all had to do that. We was coming up with the Reds, and he's up for MVP this year. <laughs> so you look at you, you look at me, Davis, uh, Sabo, Larkin. We did that every single year. What he's doing, he's considered an MVP player, and that's something we had to do in order to get to the big leagues. What do you mean? What's that? What, what did you have to do? You no, know, we had we had to be a five-two player. Mm-hmm. We had to be the throw. We had to be the hit. Hit with power. Good arm. Good good defense. But now you don't have to be a five-two player anymore. 
You just it's, it's, I mean, I, I I just think the 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 talent in the major leagues right now is just watered down. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and it's and we sometimes love some old players. We get together, we talk about it. It's hard to watch. Yeah, everything right now is a, a three run homer. There's no no scrambling to get runs. There's no moving the runners over. There's no stealing. There's no no taking the extra base. It's just, it's, it's hard to watch. But you do keep up with Joey, and uh, uh, that is, uh, to me, I think that's kind oh, of. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely keep up with Joey. I mean, he's probably the only Riz player that I know. And, but you know, you know, with the Cubs and the Dodgers and stuff like that, and, and the Astros, Astros brought me down to what were some of their hitters, and mm-hmm. I knew the Astros was going to be a, a great hitting team because some of the young players I work with in spring training, they, they got some awesome talent coming up. Do you think there's like you mentioned the the talent in the major leagues these days? Do you think there is like a, a like being a a good pure hitter is kind of starting to kind of fade away a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's starting to fade away because right now they're they're not worried about batting errors. They worry about swinging up and driving the ball out of the ballpark, they're making the the, ball, the ballparks a lot smaller smaller. So I mean, so it's all about hitting the ball out of the ballpark. It's not hitting the ball in the gap anymore. It's hitting it over the gap fences. Mm-hmm. Because you got, you got kids right now striking out 200, 250 times, and they're superstars. You struck out over 150 times. You were going down in the minor leagues when I was coming up. You struck out over 100 times just twice in your big league career. Uh, and exactly. it was it was barely over 100, 100 times. Exactly. But, but, but now you got guys striking out 200 times at All-Star break. Mm-hmm. And, but, it, but it's cool to strike out. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can you tell me a little bit about your uh, your first big league hit? It came on uh, April 11th, 1986 at San Diego off a guy who a lot of Reds folks know, Eric Shaw, the guy who gave up Pete Rose's 41-92 hit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. It was, it was basically my very first start was in San Diego, and I got my hit off uh, Eric Shaw. Uh and, and what's about you know what most yeah I remember Eric Shaw but you know who what I most remember about my first base hit what's that Steve Garvey Steve Garvey was the first baseman <laughs> and he said welcome to the big leagues I hope you get three thousand more wow that's really cool yeah that's a, you know you know you know then getting traded to the uh, Dodgers Steve was around all the time mm-hmm. and he would always ask you you remember when you got your first hit I said yeah what I remember most is you can you the first person congratulated me. And he told me, I hope you get you 3,000 more. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Your first big league home run came off a Hall of Famer. The Goose. Yeah. <laughs> Goose Gossage. 1986. Yep, and, and, yep, I remember that just like it was yesterday. It was uh, it, it tied the ball game up. It tied the ball game. I think it was uh, top of the ninth inning. We tied it up to put it in extra innings. And I remember watching Goose when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And like I said, but the thing, thing about it, I always was really intimidated by Goose. But when I finally get to meet him, he was one of the most soft-spokenest guys you ever want to meet in your life. <laughs> but he he reminded me of Dibble. But once you cro- once he crossed in that line, that playing surface, he's a totally different animal. Yeah, totally different animal. There's there are, there are a lot of guys. It's weird how you know just the the amount of guys that are like that. They're super nice guys, and I'm sure you've known millions of them who've. Right. Once you get on that field, they're completely different, especially pitchers. Yep. 
Exactly. It, like I said, Dibble was one of my great friends. We talk all the time. But when he stepped between that line, I had no idea who he was. You, you have I had a, no idea. You have one of the best quotes that I think has gone so overlooked throughout the years. And, you know, I went through your file. One of the perks about the job that I have is I have access to some of the old player files. And I was thumbing, uh-huh. thumbing through your files and going through your media clips. And I came across a quote that I think should be in Cooperstown. You said in 1989, there's no one, there's no one I love to face, but I love to hit against anyone. Exactly. <laughs> I think that is exactly. the, that is the best that is the best quote from a hitter that I think I've ever seen. But this is the thing. I played I played in the big leagues, and I was supposed to get the best every time somebody took that mound, right? So there, there's no reason to be afraid. You you got you got in order to be the best, you got to face the best. I love. So it. I, I just felt like I just felt like anybody that steps on that mound. I mean, I was going to do a job, and I did my job the best I could. Do I understand correctly? Was your dad in the Air Force? Yeah. You you bounced around to different cities. Yeah, right? I bounced around from city to city. You know, it was two years here, two and a half years there, all over the place. And a lot of people think I started playing ball in Georgia. I started playing ball in Mountain Home Air Force Base. Hmm. And Idaho. Yep. And, and so, did you say it was your godfather who was your best coach? How did that come about? Oh yeah, believe it or not, it's, it's a long story. People say my godfather founded me because we had just moved back to Georgia, and there was this team practicing, and me and one of my buddies, we was in the plum bushes picking plums, mm-hmm. and a foul ball came into the plums, <laughs> and I came out and I threw the ball to the coach, and he goes, "Kid, throw this ball again." So I threw it back to him. He says. Do you know you throw like a major leaguers? This was when I was ten years old. He said, are "You are you playing with anybody?" I said, "No, we just moved back here from Idaho." Blah blah blah. He said, "Well, you playing with us now?" <laughs> so, yeah. So they they brought this paper to my house that night and signed my dad up as a coach and all this stuff. So for the next three or four years, he caught, he taught me in football, basketball, and baseball. Wow. Yeah. And so when you know when I go around the country speaking to people, and I say, "Yeah, I was sounding in in a plum bush," and people just bust out laughing. <laughs> and then and, and then I have to tell them that story. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's great. That's a great story. <laughs> what was it about baseball? I mean, of all of all the other sports that seem kind of flashy, baseball, especially nowadays, is kind of considered you know not the instant gratification type of a sport, but. But what was it for you that you liked about it that you wanted to pursue? Well, believe, believe it or not, football was my first love. Mm-hmm. Even right now, even right now, football is still my first love. But baseball came so easy to me. Mm-hmm. You know, picking up a ball, hitting the ball, throwing the ball, and you know, I was I was gifted with speed, so everything came easy to me. So you know, little league, middle school, high school. You know, I played football, high school, basketball, high school, baseball. In my senior year, I realized that I didn't have the size. Didn't have the size in football. Didn't have the height in basketball. And But I had the heart in baseball. Mm-hmm. That's what counts. Not the size, the heart. And and I knew baseball was going to take me to the next level. So that's what I mostly gravitated to. It sounds like you're a guy that kind of believes in the intangibles. Do you uh... – 
are there any like especially nowadays with the new stats and the new metrics is there any appreciation on your end for those new stats no i don't i, I think they're overrated <laughs> i just i just you know they call it the, the analytical error i think it's, it's overrated because when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it you still got to be able to hit run throw and mm-hmm. catch gotcha so you came up in 1986. You were only 22 years old when you came up to Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And you were on a team. And that year, you were in you were in a game. And I want to get your uh, your memories of this game. And I think you might already know which one I'm talking about. It was in July of '86, the Reds and Mets at Riverfront Stadium, a six right. a 16 minute brawl. Right. Do you remember that? I remember, I remember it like yesterday because, you know, it, you know, it's funny about it. Ray Knight is a Georgia woman, Georgia boy. Mm-hmm. And me and Ray, we was friends before that brawl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and Eric Davis and Barry Larkins were my truest friends on the team. Yeah. So when that night, that taking place, man, I was, I was really torn. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I got two of my best friends over there and, you know what I'm saying? It, it, yeah. it was one of those crazy things. Like, even like now when I see Ray and Ray would say, man, it was just one of those spur of the moment things with really no no harm. It was just it was one of those games, tight games. Eric comes in hard in the third base, and it was just taking the finish. You know, and he's, oh, a, yeah. he's a battle, man. Things happen. Yeah, and you're talking about two competitors there. And for those that uh, – Exactly. For those of you folks listening out there that don't know what we're talking about, it was that game involved – it was in, in the 10th inning, as a matter of fact. It was a really crazy game. Uh, and Eric Davis slid in hard to third base, and it was one of those patented Eric Davis pop-up slides. And when he popped up, right. he was met with a stiff right hand from Ray Knight, who was at the time playing third base for the Mets, and then – for the next 16 minutes, all heck broke loose. Oh yeah. And I had a ch- oh, yeah. I had a double check how I wasn't sure if you were on that team or not and then sure enough yeah, I, I saw there. Yeah, I was there. That was your first big league year. Exactly. Well, uh we might as well go right to 1987 then because uh that was a team in which you guys, the Cincinnati Reds in 87, a force to be reckoned with in the National League's West Division. And you guys had a three-and-a-half game lead of on in first place on August 3rd, I believe it was. And then, right. and then you, I think you dropped 18 of the next 24 to, to end any postseason hopes. Was that How difficult was that for you? Uh, during that final stretch there in '87, when you when you looked like you you might be going to the playoffs, I mean, base, baseball is a funny game. Even in spring training, you know they they discuss with the team. Each team gonna go through three uh, laws where you're gonna lose nine out of ten, eleven out of twelve. That's just baseball. Mm-hmm. That's just baseball. All everybody's gonna go through it. The thing is, is how do you come out of it? Or if you got a big enough lead to withstand it. And at that time, we had a lot of young players. And we had a lot of young players that wasn't used to losing. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at our record coming up through the minor leagues, we always won championships. We always won championships. We, we got all together. They, they was calling us, you know, little red wagon. We wasn't a big <laughs> red machine yet, but we was a little red wagon because yeah. we had all the talent there. 
And 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 sometimes, man, when you when the losses start coming and you're doing everything to try to stop them from coming and a little error here or a walk here or a blue pit here and it starts sounding like it becomes a, a avalanche. That little snowball turns into avalanche, mm-hmm. and that's what happened to us. Yeah, that was uh, that. Looking back, and even I was, you know, still a, a young guy back then. But I still followed the team, and that had to be one of the most heartbreaking seasons. And I think it culminated with, uh, I think you guys, it was always the dreaded West Coast trip where the Reds would go right. out to the West Coast and 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 drop, get swept by the Giants or lose two of three from the Dodgers. And that was, uh, I think that's where that 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 term, the dreaded West Coast trip, was was born. Was during that year in '87. Yep. It's, it's, tough. it's tough going on the West Coast to play. Mm-hmm. It is tough. That's when you got to hit San Diego, L.A., uh, uh, San Francisco, and then Houston on the way back home. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's a rough trip. Yeah. It's a rough trip. I think people would be surprised even nowadays, like just going through some, some head-to-head numbers through the years of it's hard to win on the road, period. It's very hard. What you try to – baseball is like – on a home series, you try to win two or three. On the road, you try to win one or three. If you can play 500 on the road, you're playing good ball. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard with the travel. And people don't realize why everybody else is in their bed sleeping. We was up in the air flying, going to the next city. Right, right. And then having having to get back up the next day, changing time zones and sleeping in different beds and going out there and trying to be 100%. Right. It's almost impossible to do. I think also, and we're definitely going to touch upon this, is the fact that it's not easy playing every day, even if it's, I mean, it's not football, but it's still not easy playing baseball every day. Would you agree with that? Oh, it's, it's very difficult to play every day. People don't realize that if you get an injury in spring training, most of the time that injury is going to last. It's going, it's going to nag all year long. You know, even going on a disabled list, sometimes coming off the disabled list, you're still not 100%. Yeah. You know, and speaking of injuries, when I when I told people that I was having you on the show here, I say Cal Daniels, and the first thing that they say is, the guy could have been one of the best in the game had it not been for those knees of his. Yeah. I, I hear that all the time, too, but I, I don't dwell on that. I just thank the Lord that he gave me the ability to get to the major league. Mm-hmm. And I thank him even more for the time that he let me last to stay there. Right. Because, you know, I see kids every day, they dream of getting to the big league and it'll never happen. You know, right. so right. I, I'm just thankful that I got there and be able to play the time and play at a successful level. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, not to touch on a, a, a sore subject such as the knees, but do you think like like you were kind of just behind the times just a little bit as far as what modern medicine could have done for you at maybe yeah. like five years later even? Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, I talked to uh, Larry Starr. Larry Starr was our head trainer, and he told me a few months ago he, he apologized to me. Uh. He said, I apologize to you because if I know now – what I, if I would have known then what I know now, you would have played another 10 years. Wow. Wow. But that's the way, that's just the way technology and medicine has changed. Right, right. 
you know, and I, you know, I told uh, Austin Lerner, there's no need to apologize to me. They just said, you did what you could, the knowledge that you had with the, the, the problem that I had. Sure. You know, not just me, other players too. Uh, thinking, just going back through your file a little bit and just kind of reading about your injuries, it was basically one knee, right? Or was it both of them? It was both me. It was, I was basically going every other year, right knee, left knee, right knee. Because total right now I've had four on my right and two on my left. Mm-hmm. And it was fl- it was fluid back. It was a fluid buildup, or was there a was fluid there a tear? Up there, and there was never a tear. It was more like a uh, uh, cartilage would flake off. Ugh. When cartilage would flake off, it would get inside the knee and start aggravating the joint. Right. And then after a while, with all the cartilage is flaking off. You bone on bone, and that's what happened to me. I was bone on bone, and you were playing on astroturf 130 times exactly. a year, and and playing on be bad astroturf. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the turf that they're playing on now. We were playing on be bad astroturf. Right. Well, even I, I will say this. I, I st- so I was on the ground crew in 1997 through till they got grass here at uh, River or right. at Riverfront Stadium. Even there was a certain astroturf that I worked on that you guys didn't have the luxury of playing on. You guys played on a turf, and I think there's a huge difference, especially from the folks that talked to me once we got the new AstroTurf. You guys were basically playing on concrete that had a green concrete, yeah. had a green blanket put over it. Basically, that's what it was. That's we, what it was. From like 96 or 97 on, they had a padding under there. It wasn't quite the the new turf that you see in Tampa Bay or Toronto, it was it was still the AstroTurf, but there was a padding, there was a cushion, there was a lot more to it than what you guys played on, and maybe what. Well, there was, believe me, there wasn't no cushion, and and not only that, the, the turf that we played on Cincinnati, it was worn, it was bad, it was old. You see the seams underneath it. it was, I mean, it was just it was just terrible. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, that and it doesn't help when you're you're already. Dealing with a couple of bad wheels. Yep. And when did the when did those injuries? When did your knees really start? Because I know it was uh, just from doing some research. I, I saw that it you were bothered by it in the minor leagues as well. Yeah, I had uh, I had two knee surgeries in minor leagues. I had one in eighty. My first one was in I think eighty three. I jammed it sliding into the second base and it blew up. And I continued to play on it. You know, they was drawing fluid off of it, but I continued to play on. During the offseason, they went in there and said it had some cartilage damage, so they went in there and smoothed it out. And like two years later, I ended up having one on my right knee. And then it just started going along every other year, every two years from then on. Hmm. Hey, man, we're going to have to talk about the coin flip. <laughs> and if, Everybody loves the coin flip. So for those of you that listening that aren't familiar with the famous Cal Daniels coin flip, it was during spring training 1989. Cal was uh, in a salary dispute with the Reds. Uh, and, you know, not just because I'm talking to him now, but I think he had quite a gripe. And I'll tell you why in a second. But the coin flip was settled by all th- by always a, a coin flip in the parking lot of the Reds spring training complex with none other than Marge Schott. How how weird was that for you? Oh, it was it was very weird. Let me let me set the, the the table for you. Okay, this is the thing. Every every year, me David Cone, 
Ruben Sierra, Kevin Seitzer, Jose Canseco, we made the exactly the same amount every year, mm-hmm. regardless of who had the better year or whatever. So we all broke in together. So every year we made the same amount, the same amount. Mm-hmm. So that year, Ruben Sierra had signed for 325, uh, Jose signed for 325, Kevin Seitzer 325. So we figured we can get 325. They offered me 312.5. And my agent was like, hold up, hold up, hold up, let's go back. And all these guys are starting to sign at 325. Why are you offering him 312.5? Well, we're making changes, blah, blah, blah. So my agents were like, no, you can't make changes now. Mm-hmm. So I decided to leave camp. Mm-hmm. But before I decided to leave camp, I went and talked to Pete. I wanted to make sure it was okay for him, let him know what was going on. And Pete said, hey, I did it when I was your age. The team understands as long as you work out during that time we was in Plant City he said as long as you go to the high school blah 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 and get your work in the team understands your position on the team is secure mm-hmm. I said okay as long as I had Pete's you know on my side I was cool with it right so my HFI flies in to meet with Margie Murray Cook Murray, Murray was the uh, general manager at the time so he goes in and they go no we're going to offer three twelve five. I said okay well I'm going back to my apartment so I go outside and my agent stays in and talk. So Margie Murray says, and during that time, my agent knew out the hire him. They go, does Cal have a sense of humor? He goes, oh, what do you mean that we have a sense of humor? We're flipping for 325. And my agent goes, what? We're flipping for 325. If he wins the flip, he gets 325. He loses the flip, he gets 312.5. So he comes out and asks me, would I go along with it? I ain't got nothing to lose right. because if I lose the flip, I'm still going back to my apartment because I still deserve 325. Mm-hmm. So we go outside. All of a sudden, ESPN's outside. <laughs> so ESPN go, okay, what's going on? What's going on? So Marge and Murray, I guess they wanted publicity and whatever. So ESPN, what was going on? So ESPN said, can we film it live? So to make a long story short, they flipped the core I won. So now Channel 5 from Cincinnati is coming into the parking lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know this. So there's Ken Brew was the sports announcer there. So what's going on? Margin Murray again. Well, we just said 325 Cal So they go, well, can we do it live? Oh, my God. Well, you, you can only do this thing live one time. Yeah. So we went through this spill again with Channel 5, which is all, it was all fake. It was all this. So they flipped the corn. The corn takes off in the parking lot. So we're following the corn around the parking lot. So regardless of whether they're landing on tails or heads, I'm supposed to say, hey, I won. Yeah. I'll be in camp tomorrow. You know, but really, ESPN only one had it live. Channel 5 didn't have it live. Oh, that's crazy. I never so knew that. I people, never knew that. Exactly. A lot of people don't know that. But that was the way of Murray Cook and Mara Sharp to get publicity twice. Mm-hmm. Wow. But yeah, but everywhere that year, everybody wanted to flip me. They wanted to flip me for a hot dog. They wanted to flip me for a baseball. They wanted to flip me for a bat. That got old quick, I'm sure. <laughs> it got old quick. <laughs> I, you know, just to kind of support your gripe on the the whole salary dispute, and this is something that I I, I try to usually stay away from as far as you know throwing numbers out there because. It's really none of it's especially the Reds policy when or any team's policy nowadays when you put out a press release when a guy signs you don't put how much they make that's just 
not the way right. to, not the way to go. Right. But I will say this uh, in support of you, uh, and I'm sure you remember this, but in the off season of the uh, prior to the '89 season, the Reds signed a 37 year old part time player named Joel Youngblood. Now, no offense, exactly. to, no offense to Joel Youngblood. Right. But he was no Cal Daniels at the time, and wow. he was more than doubling your salary. Right. The one thing about Joel, he was a great guy in the clubhouse. Everybody loved him. And not only not only Joel Youngblood, but a 38 year old part time infielder named Manny Trio signed for right. the same amount of money that Joel Youngblood did, and at the time it was more than doubling the salary that you had made in 1988. So I think, you know, a lot of people and, you know, going through the archives now, you took a lot of grief for that, for holding out and and leaving camp. But to me, you did have a gripe. And after, yep. you know, you, you pay your dues in the minor leagues. That's where a lot of people uh, fail to realize is the the kids, even today, they come up and they, right. they don't make a whole lot of money um, in the minor leagues, knowing that when you get to the big leagues, that's when you're going to start to, you've paid your dues. Now it's time to take care of yourself. And exactly. when, and when, when you see guys like, and no disrespect to Joel Youngblood or Manny Trio, these guys were pushing 40 at the time and they're, right. they're making way more than a guy who, at the time was on his way to becoming one of the best hitters in the organization's history. And I, I think he had a gripe. Yep. I did. Like I said, once, once I had Pete on my side, uh, you know, I felt all right because, you know, being him who he was and the manager, the leader of us of the young guys. And, and he told me he had to do it. And if he was in my corner and the players was on, on my corner too. So I, I really, it really didn't bother me walking out of camp. And that, and from it seems like from that point on, it just kind of things went kind of sour for you as far as your relationship with the city and the the media. And I know from that point on, you didn't really have that great of a time in Cincinnati. Is that true? Right. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I mean, uh, like I said, the injuries, uh, you know, started compounding with the AstroTurf. You know, we we weren't as good as everybody thought we was going to be because, you know, we had offense, we had speed, we had good defense. We just didn't never had the, the big-time creative pitchers that everybody else was going out and get. Mm-hmm. So, basically, I, I I knew my time in Cincinnati was limited. It was going to either be me, Eric, or somebody. Somebody had to go. We, we, we already talked about that. Right. But here's here's another thing that I'm going to throw at you. You got this kind of uh, this reputation for being, you know, aloof or you know, uh, kind of grumpy or whatever. But at the time, you're 24 years old. I think that's. I think a, a lot of folks forget that at the time you were so young. And it's if I look back when I'm 24 years old, I, you, uh, my maturity level or whatever, I, I still had a lot of growing up to do. Did you feel you know, that way? It, I mean, looking back on I, it, you know, I, I felt like, you know, my first couple of years, I felt like it was. Uh, I would always go. I was going to play the game. My third and fourth years, it became my job. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I came up, you know, two time minor league player a year, uh, number one prospect in the organization, and I just never felt like. 
I was welcome in Cincinnati. You know, you know, having to come up the first few years, platooning with Tracy Jones, nothing against Tracy Jones. Tracy Jones couldn't play with me on his best day. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm being honest. No, I mean, the numbers they, support they, that. You know, I mean, but against your left-handed starter, Tracy would start. Games on the line, you got a left-handed closer in. Who comes off the bench? Oh, Cal Dennis, left-handed hitter. Okay, I can I can place I can face the best closers in the game on the left side, but I can't start against some flim flam lefty that's starting the game. That's on yeah, the thing is that that's on it, the manager though, right? Yeah, so that's on the manager. Mm-hmm. But me wanting to play every day and saying that I want to play every day, they were saying, well, he's got a bad attitude. Tracy Jones saying that he want to play. Oh, he's a gamer. He's this. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. I want to play every day because. When I'm in the game, it shows that I can, I'm capable of doing what I'm capable of doing, whether it's a left-handed or right-handed hitter. But I can't get the opportunity when I'm sitting on the bench on a left-handed starter. That's a good a lot point. Of times, a lot of times, I'll be three for four, just killing the ball. All of a sudden, I look in the Cincinnati Inquirer, somebody else has the headlines. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what, 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 what do I have to do here in order to get what's coming to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seems like, I mean, it'll be a headline that has nothing to do with the game sometimes. It got to a point where I just quit reading the paper or, you know, just whatever. I was like, oh, it's, just, it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. Did you ever talk to Pete about that? Yeah, I, talk, I talked to him. And in, 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 in his defense, he was like, Cal, I was young, I was, you know, I, I was learning, blah, blah, blah. I said, I said, Pete, I, I understand all that. Pete wanted everybody to play like Pete. Mm-hmm. Everybody didn't play like Pete. Right, right. Each, each player's motivation is different. Mm-hmm. You know, me and Eric, you know, they say I was aloof. I didn't need to be motivational. Again. I've been playing this game all my life. Yep. I know what it takes for me to be prepared and ready to play this game. I don't need a cheerleader. I'm, my cheerleader comes from within, within. Yep. You know, so, you know, people saying about man, me being a loose, no, I, I just wanted to win. Right. And I stayed on an even keel. If I struck out three times, I'm still on the even keel. If I hit three home runs, you can't tell when I hit three home runs and struck out three times. Mm-hmm. Because I know I got to come back the next day to perform. If not, they're going to boo my tail. Right. And and I I looked at it, it's, it's, it's my job. Mm-hmm. It's my job. I got to go perform every day to do my job. And and when people thought I was aloof by being that way. But it was a job to me. And and, and, and any player thinking any different, it's a job. Right. Because the next person is waiting to take your position. And I think you said it best too. Like you're not all players are not created the same. There there are different right. personalities. Even today, you know, when I go down to get a guy that that needs to do a phone interview with someone it's some guys are easier to get than others some guys are right some guys are better with the media than others and that's not exactly it's not because they don't like it maybe it is maybe it's they just don't like that part of the game and that you know they're so used to concentrating on what goes on between the lines that all of a sudden they kind of have to adapt and we expect them to uh yeah. be able to you know talk to the press to the but see, to, some, but see, someone who who is not used to getting interviewed, 
they love for that microphone being in their face all the time. Mm-hmm. But somebody who used to get an interview on a game day when it's a big game, a big series, they're more worried about what's going on on the field. They're not worried about, am I going to have a good interview? I'm going to have a good press come. They're worried about being focused on what they have to get done on the field. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to also, like, it, my point is, it also goes back to the these guys are 22 to 27 years old most of the time. Right. Like, right. man, it's think about, you know, the, 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 when people are quick to criticize, think about what you were doing at 22, 23, exactly. 24 years old. It's a, the exactly. amount of pressure that, that you guys, that you, Cal, that had to, you had to deal with, and even the players today, especially with the social media and everything, it, it amazes me and it kind of makes me proud of the guys, the what, the ones that are really good at it, th- right. that they can that they can do it. Because there's no way I would have been able to do it if I was a player and had to deal with the, the the questions, especially after you played poorly or if something you know something personally exactly. was going on with you. It's just it's an exactly. it, it's an amazing so, thing. Yeah, because anybody can interview when everything is going good. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The questions are easy when it's going good. But when you're struggling or, or, or making an error or miss a fly ball or strike out with the game on the line, those questions are not as easy to answer anymore. And then the last thing you want to do is have a micro, six or seven microphones stuck in your face. Mm-hmm. You know? Hey, on to a lighter thing. You once said that you used the same bat for nearly an entire season. Is that true? And yeah. how is that possible? Yeah. Is that a lot of luck's involved in that, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of Believe it or not, I started using a bat. First day of spring training. The first day of spring training. And I think it broke August 10th. Oh, my goodness. I'm serious. My, t- my teammates could not believe it. They could not believe it. They go do. But when it Jimmy, when it broke, it shattered in probably ten pieces. <laughs> it was more it was and, and that's what I always team is he was they saw this go, You better get Cal back. Cal got Cal they Louisville sent Cal some totally different bats than everybody else get. Yeah. <laughs> I swung it from the first day of spring training to August tenth. That's, that was almost impossible. That's incredible. Yeah. That's that's yeah. unbelievable. What you said about Louisville yeah. Slugger, that's true. I, I read somewhere that each team, because of the the amount of good wood that was available, each team had right. like two of their best guys would get the best bats. And it said that. Yeah. And what I read was you and Eric always got the yeah. the the pick of the litter, so the so to speak. It, 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 it was funny how when, when Louisville would make a shit in the Cincinnati, everybody would. I would come in in my locker sometime, and all my bats would be in the locker, out of the box. And they'd be go, dude, look at your bats compared to everybody else's. I had the, the prettiest, the, the sweetest <laughs> greens, greens. And, it, and it's funny how when Eric started struggling, he would always grab one of my bats. <laughs> he would always grab one of my bats and start just killing the ball. And then he would go back to his model. I'm like, I'm like, Eric, why would, why would you – Swing my bat to get you out of the slump, but when you come out of the slump, you go back to your bat. I will stay with one of my bats. <laughs> hey, you had enough to you had enough to go around. You didn't break one for it, almost exactly, the entire year. Exactly, and people go, man, how do you how do you get in? when Chuck used to come up? They would always get on Chuck. I don't care. I get those bats like that. Chuck just shook. He just shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> but yeah, they they took care of me when it came to bats. Oh, that's great! I, that's almost impossible. I, I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. That you used one from day one of spring training to August. 
I, I even even my worst year, I would probably only break ten bats a year. Wow, that's yeah. I would probably only break ten bats a year. That 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 you know what you said a lot of luck, but you're also barreling the ball a lot. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, I see some guy. I mean, I'm in one game. Tracy Jones broke score in one game one time. <laughs> we just, and, and Pete goes, how does he do that? I go, I have no idea. Uh, he broke score in one game, and Pete just goes, how does he do that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Hey, something happened to you in 1989 in April, and you kind of shrugged it off at the time, but I want to ask you if there was any lasting effects to when you were you were hit in the face by a line drive during uh, bat- batting practice before a game in April. I don't. I, I blame myself. I, blame, I really, I blame myself. And uh, you walking down the outfield and uh, wasn't paying attention. Walk behind the screen from the uh, screening outfield. Paul O'Neill, he had square one up, and he hit me in the jaw. I mean, it hit me flush. My knees buckled, but I tell everybody I did not go down. <laughs> I, I did not go down. You got a standing but, eight count. Exactly. So. They, they they rushed me to the emergency room to make sure what nothing was wasn't broken. You know, my mouth was all cut up on the inside. And so we get back to the ballpark and I think I got back to the ballpark about seven, seven fifteen. The funny story about it is I was still in the lineup. <laughs> Pete Pete had never took me out of the lineup. And I walk in and I go, Larry, she got me in the lineup. So I go, What? So he had to go and tell Pete right before he started announcing the starting lineup that I wasn't going to be able to play tonight. <laughs> oh, man. And, I mean, I got hit square. I mean, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was, I, was, I, was, I was loopy. I was loopy, but I did not go down. So, Jamie, you make sure you tell people I did <laughs> not go down. I'll let them all know. Folks, you know, for those of you who are listening, Cal Daniels did not go down. And he didn't get hit <laughs> by he didn't get hit by Joel Youngblood or Manny Trio. He got hit by Paul O'Neill. <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, Cal, do you think there was any lasting effects, especially knowing now what we know with you know the the concussion protocols and whatnot? You know, to be honest with you, I look back on that. I definitely had a concussion. Mm-hmm. I, def- I, I know I did because I mean it, it. It wasn't a glance. It wasn't a glancing blow. You know, it, was, it was. It was solid. I mean, it was. I, I was right behind second base with a line shot came mm. off, off my jaw. Mm. But like I said, I'm pretty sure I had a concussion, but, you know, that's, like I said, med- medical the change, and back in the day, they probably would have kept me out two weeks, but it is what it is. Hey, tell me how much fun that Jeep Superstars competition was. Oh, my God, man. <laughs> when you... <laughs> when you competing against the best in the world is... Uh, from different sports and it's it's great it's just the stories that are being told mm-hmm. baseball players locker room got some great stories but football and, and, and track and boxing and Van Holyfield and uh, gold Olympic medal Matt Biondi some of the stories they can tell you they have your side cracking up and for those of you, you know, that don't know what I'm talking about Cal was asked to participate back in the day in the in the 80s especially they NBC had a show called the Jeep Superstars competition and something that you'll never see these days for a variety of reasons but 
they had the world-class athletes from all over from all different sports competing you know obstacle course bowling and all these these different competitions and cal was was lucky enough to participate in the year that he participated 1989 he was against carl lewis herschel walker evander holyfield and barry bonds just to name a few there, there were some players there. I mean, it was and, and a lot of things back then. Some of us were still good friends of that. We still talk about that. We see each other. We still laugh about that. <laughs> especially about, especially about one event that I was in. I was in a rowing event in a boat, <laughs> and I had never been in a rowing boat in my life. And we was out in this alligator swamp. Oh. I'm trying to control this boat with this two pounds, man. They had to come get me, man. It was just crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. I was going, I was drifting. I couldn't control that thing. And man, everybody, that night at that dinner, man, they couldn't stop laughing at me. It was, it was hilarious. Boy, and and I told them, listen, hey, I'm not, I ain't never been no boater. Never have been there. But it was just an event that I had to participate in. Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking back. I went through some old YouTube footage, and boy, NBC sure did love Herschel Walker back then, didn't they? Oh yeah, he was in oh, every yeah. scene. You got that right, man. He was great. He's a great guy. He's yeah. a great guy. That's good to know that you still keep in touch with those guys. And you did well. You did really well in oh, that competition. I did, hey, I won. I, I won. I came in first and second a couple couple of events. You came away with some money. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's what it's all about. I didn't come away with no jeep. I didn't come away with a jeep, but I came away with a little piece of change. Hey, why did you? Uh, what what made you gravitate toward the number twenty eight? Believe it or not, I really wanted four. Really? That's that's the number I wore all in high school, morning college. I wore four all the way through minor leagues, all the way through minor leagues. Then my Big new year, I walked in the clubhouse. They gave me 28 because Bruce Kim, mm-hmm. our bullpen coach, wanted number four. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I gravitated 28. Mm-hmm. And luckily for me, I wore 28 through my whole career. When I got traded to Dodgers, 28 was available. When I got traded to Chicago, 28 was available. So wow. that's, that's, yeah, most yeah. of the time, when you get traded, your jersey's not available. You got to buy it from somebody. I love yeah. that. But I was lucky enough to wear my same number my whole career. But four was my number. What I remember most about you wearing number 28 in Cincinnati is uh, I was just a little kid when I came to Riverfront. And you and Eric and Dave Parker, were they? you guys were my guys. That's who I came to right. see. And I remember seeing you come out on the field and – the eight on your on the back of your jersey, you wore twenty eight, so that the the eight looked like a kind of like a B. So it looked right. like you had two B on the back of your jersey. So I thought, there's Cal Daniels, he's going to hit a double tonight. And you know, at some point, you probably I mean, there was a lot of times where you you know go three for four with two doubles. I'm like, there it is, there's Cal Daniels, the double machine. So that, that's my personal yeah. how I always remember that you wore twenty eight. Hey, man, before we wrap things up, man, I know we talked a little bit about how, you know, things probably didn't go well for a 25-year-old Cal Daniels uh, in Cincinnati, despite, you know, uh, the stuff on the field was fine, maybe not so much off the field. But looking back on it right. now that you're older, do you uh, do you have any fond memories or do you have any regrets or anything like that? Or do you have anything that you would like to say about your time in Cincinnati? 
Well, I'll let everybody know. I, I, I endure my time in Cincinnati. Maybe it didn't, 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 you know, focus on that, but I'll always love Cincinnati. It was a uh, city that gave me the opportunity to, to live out my dream. As a matter of fact, I, I, I come in town three, four times a year. Oh. My son, my son lives in Cincinnati, so I'm quite there quite a bit. And, uh, like I said, all the members and the, the, the fans and the people that I came across and who really got to know Cal Danes as a person, not Cal Danes as a baseball player, they knew the true heart that I had. Because anybody that knows me on a personal level in Cincinnati, everyone will tell you I'm a great guy. Now, I could have been a dick as a baseball player, mm-hmm. but I, I had no regrets. Well, that's great, Cal. And I tell you what, you're – just talking to you today was the first time I've really ever spoken to you and you know next time you come to town I'd like to you know buy you a beer so hey sounds great I'm gonna take you up on it all right Cal Daniels first class guy one of the best hitters that I've ever seen personally and it's it's what a great pleasure to have you on and we really appreciate it Cal all right Jim take care okay take care man I really appreciated Cal's thoughts and candor I found him and continue to find him as one of the most interesting players I've ever had the chance to watch on a regular basis. I thought for sure he was going to be talked about in the same breath as some of the great hitters of his time period, Tony Gwynn, Wade Boggs, George Brett. I think he could have been, and I blame his knee issues for not allowing him to reach such heights. As far as Cal's issues in the clubhouse and with the media, as I researched for this podcast, I found that he was mostly justified and had a legitimate gripe. Was his self-awareness operating at its highest level at the time? Probably not. But was yours when you were in your early 20s? I know mine certainly wasn't. I want to thank Cal for taking time out to chat with us, and I know some of the stuff probably wasn't the easiest for him to talk about, so I really appreciate his time. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Next time here on the Better Off Red podcast, we'll have a special episode focusing on the time the Reds took a working tour of Japan and how it marked the end of the Big Red Machine as we know it. Legendary Reds PR man Jim Ferguson joins me to chat about the Reds' 17-game Far East trip in 1978. You won't want to miss it. A big thanks to our guest, Cal Daniels, and to our technical director, Nick Prince, who does all of the heavy lifting behind the scenes. Until next time, I'm Jamie Ramsey. Thanks for listening to the Better Off Red podcast, and expect good news.